The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 17th, 2016, the Should You Work for President Trump edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins us from yonder and beyond. I don't know where you are, Emily, but hello. New York. I'm in New York. Hello. And then John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, joins us from Project Elsewhere. Where are you here? <laughs> I'm at the Lowe's Hotel in uh, Philadelphia. The three of us have not, we barely even had the two of us in a room together in a while, much less the three of us. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm looking forward to our conundrum show on the 30th because. Uh, Me too. Just, you know. Yeah. Be back, have the band back together. And speaking of which, send us conundrums. At, what a good segue. At gabfest at slate.com uh, or tweet us at slate gabfest and hashtag them conundrum so uh, we can get some of your great conundrums on our show. On this week's Gabfest, Bannon or Priebus, Priebus or Bannon, Bannon and Priebus. What do Trump's early appointments tell us about how he might govern? Then we're going to have an ethics symposium on whether it is moral to take a job with President Trump. Then Facebook and Google were swamped with fake news during this campaign. Are they obliged to do something about that? Did that have any role in the Trump victory? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, I don't know what we're going to talk about in Slate Plus. It's going to be amazing. We're going to leave that. It's going to be an open question. We're going to open a Fabergé Easter egg of Slate Plus at the end (laughs) of the show, and it's going to be magic. And you're just going to have to wait, Slate Plus. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, maybe you should join now to get that Easter egg. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Amid reports that his transition is in disarray, Donald Trump this week appointed Reince Priebus as his chief of staff and Steve Bannon, the white nationalist supremacist Breitbart guru, as his, as Priebus's co-equal, but not as chief of staff, as a kind of senior advisor. Uh, meanwhile, he dumped Chris Christie as the head of his transition. Mike Pence is now heading it, although there's paperwork issues that still don't seem to be resolved as we tape on Thursday, although maybe they have been. And he also dumped a relatively senior Republican, Mike Rogers, from the national security transition. And there's just a lot of stuff that's happening. John, how do we parse the Priebus and Bannon appointments? Well, I, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure how we parse it. So if the big question with Donald Trump, or one of the big questions is, which Donald Trump is going to show up to the presidency? Is it the Donald Trump of the 3 a.m. tweeting and Muslim ban? Or is it the Donald Trump of the teleprompter and the conciliatory person of his um, victory speech and his meeting with the president and his interview with Leslie Stahl? The reason we don't know is because we don't know two things, whether that is a papering over of an essential Trump and that the essential Trump is you know, always going to be there and and then reassert itself at some point, which would be sort of the primacy of the Steve Bannon worldview. Or um, was it an act that Trump engaged in to get elected and the constraints of the office and the constraints of people who kept him using the teleprompter and kept him off Twitter at 3 a.m. and other things, whether those will largely hold for the presidency. And we just don't know. It's, I mean, Ben Carson talked about the two Trumps during the campaign, and we now have his staffing has put that into the into the structure of having two Trumps. Emily, given what we've seen so far, it, it appears to me that there are at least three different potential Trump administrations that we could have. One would be a totally symbolic administration where he is, he is a he is a circuses man who does spectacle himself, but where Paul Ryan and the congressional Republicans basically do all the work. Trump signs bills and takes credit, but doesn't do anything very much. Second model is it's a very fiercely alt-right administration where Bannon is guiding policy and Trump is indeed pursuing quite harsh and radical proposals uh, around Muslim immigration or, or uh, immigration generally and trade that don't really have much to do with the overall House agenda or the overall Republican agenda. The third is that it's a it's a basically non-ideological administration where Trump looks for ways to endear himself to the general public opportunistically, but there's no rhyme or reason to it. And maybe it's, you know, there's some Ryan stuff passed, but then there's some infrastructure because like that's a that's a way to create uh, goodwill, popular goodwill. What what 
are you seeing based on what's happened so far? So it's really hard to tell. I mean, we're just in this moment of reading tea leaves. And I think that people's instincts are apparent. So there's the kind of hope for the vest instincts where you look at the tea leaves and you emphasize the positive signs from your point of view. And then there's the prepare for the worst. And Trump is providing evidence on both sides. I see more evidence for prepare for the worst than I do reason for optimism. But I also think the administration could veer between or among the different possibilities and be one thing in one moment and something else at another. I mean, he is a person who doesn't really seem to have core principles, is willing to jettison, it seems like almost anything except his family, to achieve some momentary agenda. And so I guess the no rhyme or reason is the most likely to me. But what I imagine is that it's going to ricochet all over the place. And I mean, we also should talk about how central, you know, his kids and his brother, his son-in-law seem to be. I mean, they're just these potential for nepotism and corruption and questions about the propriety of, you know, having an unappointed, unelected Jared Kushner have access to the daily briefings from the intelligence community. Just these kind of weird questions are coming up that are pretty distinct and, and hard to know how they're going to play out. Does that, John, when you think about that question of the family, does that grate on you, nag you? It, it's it's one that just has holds no interest at all to me. It doesn't seem I, – I'm sure that Trump is going to – there's going to be some crazy nepotism and he's going to enrich himself in ways that, that are unfortunate. But actually, I find it hard to worry about that in the slightest. That's one set of issues that are raised is um, – uh, just we should just step back for a moment and think of we had a big long conversation about the messy fuzziness between uh, Hillary Clinton's State Department and the Clinton Global Initiative. The Clinton Global Initiative, which was um, both a relief organization overseas and which we now know from WikiLeaks email was also a conduit to personal enrichment for for Bill Clinton in the way in which corporations which donated to one gave, you know, paid for him to give speeches to the other. Okay. We just had a big election, which we had a big conversation about that. So it seems to me that everybody should be just as thorough and as nervous about the ties between the Trump selection of companies, which have no beneficial arm. It's just a, so um, they operate all over the world. They, so there's a lot of stuff that should be walls that should be built or transparency that should be built in. If, if we were, if we're just being consistent with all the time that was spent and energy and worry that was uh, put into the examination of Clinton's um, relationship. But then I think secondarily, you have an interesting question of who, who advises and can get the principal to move off of his opinions. So on the one hand, you can see the family members and their, um, if they play a significant role in the administration, whether they're on staff or not, and, and Emily makes a very good point about, um, you know, what accountability is there if you're just in the kitchen cabinet, although that's obviously true with, with all uh, presidents to one degree or another, though in this case more acute. But but is it do they provide an a, a, a leavening influence? Are they responsible for um, keeping him in a kind of more moderate posture? Or do they pro provide a new and unheard of cocooning influence? The problem when you surround yourself with loyalists, which, he's, which he appears to be doing in the positions he's uh, thinking about, or your family, is that nobody's around who, who, it's not that they can't tell you no, that's one problem. The other is they don't see the negative options. You basically get groupthink. The, yeah, there was this very interesting article uh, analyzing Bannon's interviews with Trump or public conversations with Trump and pointing out how canny Bannon seemed to be in these public conversations. Who knows what he was doing in private, private, but how canny Bannon seemed to be about framing issues to allow Trump the, the optionality of a decision uh, that Trump could sort of decisively say, that, you know, going to do this, going to do that. But that that Bannon was very brilliant about framing the issues such that the, the, the decision was going to end up being one that Bannon clearly favored. It's a little bit like what people used to say about how Dick Cheney operated uh, in the Bush White House. I have no idea if that was true about how Dick Cheney, but that was always the legend. And I wonder if if that is, in fact, what, what how Bannon's going to operate for Trump now. And it need not just be Bannon. And if Bannon does operate that way, what are the chances this is going to be a moderate presidency? I mean, Bannon's 
Brannon's website, Breitbart, posts all kinds of racist, misogynist, you name it, material. And while they are very much backing away from the label of white nationalist and nationalism, which um, I'm not even sure exactly what that means right now, they clearly are, um, you know, promoting a hard right agenda that is not welcoming to all Americans, does not, you know, reach out, and that transgresses a lot of social norms and political boundaries that I thought were pretty firmly in fi- in place. I mean, I go on that website, I look at those headlines, I think that person is a few steps from the Oval Office. It feels to me like we are sliding back many decades in how we treat um, vulnerable groups. I, I have to say that the the part about all of this that that makes me much more anxious is obviously Trump is a totally unreliable uh, person, a narcissist, uh, un, unsteady, unmoored, no no fixed principles, no belief system, and a monumental liar. But Paul Ryan is not. Paul Ryan is a steady person with a clear sense of what he wants to do and and a clear sense of using the political process and in, in to accomplish goals and. And I think the the winner of this of this uh, election is Paul Ryan as much as it is Donald Trump. That we're going to see very quickly a, a House Republican and then a Senate Republican uh, legislative sweep that's going to remind us of kind of what the what it is that the Obama administration did back at the beginning of its uh, term when it had a House and and Senate majority. There's going to be a lot of legislation very fast. It's going to be very disturbing to to liberals and democrats the fears emily has are are warranted if you think that the line from breitbart to action is direct the question is i think both what david says which is i mean one of the amazing things that should not be forgotten is when when paul ryan celebrating donald trump's victory said you know he heard voices out there in the country yeah the voices donald trump heard were the ones calling for paul ryan's head um, and so anyway, he's now on the team and Paul Ryan was now unanimously made speaker again. And I think for those who in the there were a lot of House Republicans who felt uh, they could back Donald Trump with the hopes that basically Trump would come into office, want to achieve things. And Paul Ryan would have a ready uh, sets of legislation to put in front of him. I mean, that means uh, Obamacare is uh, is in trouble. That means Medicare is likely to go into a voucher system. That means a lot of the things Paul Ryan has worked on, which Democrats and liberals have worried about, those are likely to come to pass. And so those will be big policy debates. But that's different than, uh, you know, the... Um, you know, an immediate national Muslim ban. And I guess the question then becomes, what does the pragmatist want to do? If Donald Trump came right into office and started doing the most incendiary Breitbart-like actions, then it's going to create an uproar that makes it harder to do perhaps other things. And then I guess, Emily, you would know the answer to this much better, but what what can he do in executive orders? Just, you know, undoing Obama executive orders that creates immediate action along the lines of his, you know, relative to what can be done legislatively, which even even with a Republican House and Senate is still going to take some time. Right. Well, I mean, he can back out of the climate change deal with executive orders. He can completely change the focus of the Justice Department. Chris Kobach, who's one of his close advisors and is being talked about um, at Justice, is reviving the idea of a national Muslim registry. We sort of had something like this under the Bush administration, where they treated about 80,000 men from 25 particular countries differently from other um, people who enter the country, and 24 of those 25 countries were majority Muslim countries. The other one was North Korea. So, you know, they could bring back that idea. They could build on it. The federal government has enormous power. And um, who runs these different federal agencies matters a great deal in terms of what executive orders get signed and which ones get shredded. And we don't know yet because he has Trump hasn't picked the people who are going to be in charge. But so far, the people he is talking about are some of the more hard right and also discredited figures in American politics. It is not a heartening list. It is not a bunch of, you know, moderate. Republicans who are getting past their never Trump instincts. It's, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Chris Kobach. And uh, yeah, a guy, I can't remember his name, but the guy they're talking about at the housing authority was the person who fought against fair housing in Westchester and against ending racial discrimination there. 
Oh, my God. That Medicare business, I, 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 it's alarming. I need to focus in on it more. But the if Ryan really does this, this will destroy Medicare. His, the, they want to privatize Medicare, make it a voucher system. It will no yes. longer be a comprehensive national system for every elderly person guaranteed when you hit 65. It's a, that would be astonishing if they did that. Well, and they're going to they're gonna have to get through the Affordable Care Act first to get to that. So, yeah, we're about to have a huge conversation about health care uh, in America again. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. More than 4,000 appointees and plenty of non-political positions also that have real power. Donald Trump's got a lot of jobs to fill. A lot of people to hire, not just not just your Rudy Giuliani's at Secretary of State, uh, not just your Chris Kobach's at Department of Justice, but lots and lots and lots and lots of other positions that really make a difference. So the question that a lot of Republicans and a lot of uh, conservatives are grappling with is, should you serve a leader who you did not support and whose whose public statements you find revolting? Ross uh, Douthat in the New York Times wrote a piece essentially uh, hectoring, ordering, ordering uh, anyone who is asked to serve to serve, to try to be a bumper against Trump's flaws and ignorance. Others take a more absolutist approach in the other direction uh, with more Nazi comparisons than I'm completely comfortable with. Um, So, Emily, I'll make this hard for you. What is the case for somebody serving Donald Trump? The case for serving is that you have to keep the train on the track. And I feel like it's especially strong when you're talking about the State Department and international relations. And essentially, you're you're kind of imagining that this is a very unpredictable person and you want to try to make sure to protect the United States relationships with all these other countries to prevent the United States from um, recklessly going to war and to also just preserve American power and stature and authority, all of which, you know, could be threatened in this administration by Trump's affection for Vladimir Putin, by, you know, prospective trade war against China, that you're just trying to contain his worst instincts and that you're doing it very much in the national interest, thinking about America and its status in the world. All right. And what's the case, John, for resisting? What's the case for if the Trump administration calls and asks you to, to put yourself up for a job at the Department of the Interior? Why should you not do that? Well, Assuming you're a, somebody who was a who was a, yeah. a Republican who didn't support Trump. I don't know. I've read the cases for resisting. Was it Elliot Cohen who wrote about this in the Washington Post about being a never Trumper saying then he should give up his never Trumpism and help. But then after interacting with the Trump team, he's back on the no, don't do it. And the case he made was patriotism. Yes. But then after interacting with them, 
the feeling of vindictiveness and self-absorption and and sort of we won get in line was so thorough that it that it was a frightening and that it needs to break before uh any progress can be made and that if you if you go along you you don't hasten that breakening that breakening of will and i don't know if that exists i mean it certainly exists in some places i mean one of the interesting things is again if you look at the things that in, incensed conservatives about Barack Obama. He moved too fast. He uh, told Eric Cantor when Cantor pushed back at him in uh, January of '09. He said, "Look, elections have consequences. We won, and that was used among Republicans and conservatives as a, a spur in their own efforts to block him because they saw it as arrogant. They saw it as disinterested in reaching out, and so forth and so on. So." There are lots of opportunities to not make the same mistakes that the Obama administration made by the reasoning of, of those who were in opposition to it. And we'll see if those mistakes are avoided. But, uh, but I guess the don't work for the Trump administration case is until they get over that sense of vindictiveness and sort of hubris that it's not going to be a functioning White House. I, I still find the case for patriotism more compelling of the two that I've heard. Another argument for, in the case for working for this administration is that you, if it turns out, in fact, that this administration is pursuing evil ends or is doing things so incompetently that they don't deserve uh, your service, that you can you can choose to publicize that as you depart, that you can you can make you can use your service and its failure as a warning sign to others. So that whereas if you never serve, you are no position to make a case against what the administration is doing or less of a case of it. And the second is that this is a president who appears to have no set ideology or governing philosophy or organization. So he's poten- it's potentially uh, he's very much likely to be the guided by the people around him and guided by the government, by the by the public servants who are actually executing the will of the government. So if you believe you've got great ideas for how this government should operate, this is a much better time to go into government than maybe any other time. Somebody who's got great ideas about public policy related to, to housing, maybe now is the moment to serve and now is the moment to step up because there's not, there's not some person above you who's going to have smarter ideas or more experience. This is an incredibly inexperienced uh, president with an inexperienced team around him. So there may be, you may have a better possibility of getting work done. And also- I found and- it to be a fantasy. Rob Astorino, whose, whose name has come up for the Housing Authority, which I couldn't remember earlier, has a record of opposing desegregation. It's not like they are going to hand these agencies over to morally neutral pragmatists. Like Bloomberg is is not going to be on the list. No, I, I, I agree with that. That's That's definitely the case. But but, you know, you've worked in organizations. These are large institutions and large organizations. And a lot of what happens, nobody pays any attention to. Like they pay attention to the one or two things they care about. And then and then the rest of it kind of putters along. I, I mean, I run a, a small company and I don't know 80 percent of what's happening in my own company most of the time. I'm not saying like that you could come in to to the immigration to whoever's doing border security and say, we're going to have open borders and no one will notice in the Trump administration. They'll definitely notice something like that. But it, but if you were, if you want to make some changes around the margins, around our policies towards uh, Malawi and, and Uganda, probably no one, the, no one in the Trump administration gives a shit about that. And so, so your chance to serve and to, to modestly improve that is real. And so maybe you, maybe you can do it. No, unpersuasive. <laughs> I'm not persuaded. And I also think there's just this question, and, and we don't know the answer yet. I mean, I am drawn to your idea that if you go in, then you can exit loudly if things go terribly wrong, and also that you'll be eyes and ears, and you'll be a watchdog for the government and its basic tasks and basic the basic things it does to perform its job. But I also think there's a big question. And again, we don't know what the agenda is. But if the agenda goes against one's values and core principles, and you don't agree with the outcome, then I don't see why you're supposed to get in there and like make it all work better. Well, because the alternative is ca- catastrophe. Also, I, I, for those listening, they might have thought David was... No, a- maybe the alternative is chaos. And chaos might be good from the point of view of, you know, showing voters that that this thing isn't working very well. So just it sounds like the argument you just made, which is chaos might be good, 
is exactly the animating argument that Trump supporters made when they voted for him. Oh, come on. I don't think that's a fair I, equivalent. I, I mean, they're talking about blowing up the entire establishment in Washington, D.C. I'm asking whether if the Justice Department is run by Rudy Giuliani, you want to be helping him, you know, create a national stop and frisk policy and making that work well on the ground. Right. But your argument is that it shouldn't work well. You should allow it not to work well so there can be chaos and then there can be reform and better outcomes. Yeah, I do think that. I do think sometimes letting things fall apart. We're all apart. in this Leninist moment now. It's all this heightening the contradictions. You had a conservative movement, which has been built on this Leninist principle that we have to make, well, let's make things really worse. Let's let's gum everything up. Let's destroy it all. And then we can build the thing that we want. And now you have li- you have liberals who are who are kind of making, as John, you're saying, you're li- making a little bit of the same point, which is that let's make things worse for the country so that everyone sees how bad it is. And then we get back and, and can and can govern things better. I think, think it's I think both sides are really, really I, fucking I dangerous. Think there's a slightly there's a making things worse for the country is different from not furthering an agenda that you think is a bad agenda. Right. right. So, like, yeah. let's talk about voter suppression, which is something that is like absolutely going to happen and take place. So, you know, that is going to be marching orders going forward from the Justice Department. It's very helpful to Republicans politically. It seems to me like one of the most likely things to have going on. So if you're going to work in the civil rights division in the Justice Department, do you take part in that effort? That's the question on the table, not like, are you going to be able to convince them to do something else? Or are you going to be able to pick off some tiny place in Texas where you, you know, prevent one bad redistricting? That seems like that those are the more real choices. Uh, there's another piece in the kind of why don't work for them that I've actually found very persuasive, which is that I can't remember who wrote about this, but that we are all we are very social creatures, human beings. So you can go in with the best of intentions in the planning to resist whatever it is and to and to be a strong voice against the the culture or the ideas that you find offensive and you you are going to speak out against it. But we all want approval. We all want status. We all want to be liked by the herd. And most of us are unable to resist that kind of uh, acculturation of ourselves because we want to be part of a culture. We want to be part of a team. We want to be together. And so if you go, if you join an administration and you say, I'm going to be a moderating influence or I'm going to resist what we're doing and, and stand firm about that, it's very hard for most of us to pull that off. There are the rare people who have, who are extremely independent and don't care what other people think of them and they they are able to do it and those are the whistleblowers and they're often very unpleasant to be around because they don't go along with what's going on but it's very hard to maintain that stance of of outsiderness for a long period of time and and therefore your own belief that you might be able to change things is is probably overstated because you will be acculturated into whatever is going on it's easier to rationalize than to be resolute right very yes, John. You just said in five words what I was trying to say. Right. So, I mean, what about the media's role in all of this? Because you know, we all, and I guess especially you, John, have these choices to make about who gets airtime, how much respect they're treated with. Um, you know, does Steve Bannon get treated like a mainstream, completely legitimate spokesperson for the Trump administration when five seconds ago he seemed like a member of the fringe and someone you know you'd want to take a shower after? hearing his views aired. I mean, there's there's just this such a strong pull for a presidential administration to be to be accepted, to be fawned over, to be um, treated with dignity and authority. And some of the people who Trump is um, accelerating into power just I don't know. It's hard for me to watch. Well, I mean, the the strong pull um, that grants them authority was granted by nearly 60 million people who voted for them. So, and that's supposed to be kind of the basic bargain with democracy. You know, the normalizing that has happened has happened by the 60 million voters who voted for him. Now, having said that, the problem is the person who was just elected is um, one of the great innovators in challenging the legitimacy of a duly elected president. And so for five or more years, Donald Trump suggested Barack Obama was an illegitimate president based on no uh, facts at all. You know, we're going to have to kind of fumble through it because on the one hand, a significant portion of the country feel anxious and uneasy because he either explicitly or implicitly targeted 
certain groups and those groups now as a whole feel threatened and marginalized by his election. And it would be an, an offense to context to just forget everything that happened before. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's not the first sentence that begins every time you talk about the Trump administration. Um, but in bringing up the past and the context and all the members of these administrations is not some, um, you know, particular bias against the Trump administration. It's trying to keep things in context. And if the context is things that they've said in the past that are offensive, they're not less offensive because they're now president. They're just the context. I want to actually just close this by by making a separate point. So I want going backwards a little bit. One of the things that I've spent the week thinking about is kind of what 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 do I think? Not just about this question about whether I should serve in a Trump administration because I don't think that's likely. I think it's unlikely I'm going to be asked to serve in Trump administration. <laughs> but really, what is it what are our obligations as citizens? And I I actually came to a slightly optimistic conclusion about this, which is that one of the things I hope this election makes people realize is that you can do an awful lot of good in the world outside of the government and federal government. And in fact, that probably the most important obligations that all of us have is to find and buttress the civic institutions that make the United States so great. One of the things that, that I, as I've been thinking about this as, a, as an old Tocquevillian, Tocquevillian is the realization that, um, that um, why is it, why do I not feel that Donald Trump is really a threat to the United States in the way that Vladimir Putin is a threat to Russia or the way that Hitler was, is that we have a we are a nation of massive, varied and strong civic institutions. That we have religious institutions at the level of churches. We have incredible professional associations. All of us belong to the Asian American Journalist Association or whatever. We have very strong local governments that are distinct from federal governments. We have local community organizations. We have neighborhood organizations. We have the the probably the strongest network of philanthropies and nonprofits in in the history of the world, and all of those continue to do work. Continue to they now they they can be affected by the federal government. They can be damaged by federal policies. They can be undermined. They can lose funding. That's all all true, but they are the things that make the fabric of society and also make makes us as a nation uniquely able to resist. I think a, an authoritarian tyranny. Because we are, we have this, these disparate interconnections and networks and, and ways of interacting and, and building community around each other. And so I think that if you are a, somebody who's a, who doesn't want to serve in the Trump administration but wants to make a contribution to the world and continue to do it, it's, there are so many great civic institutions that you can help build and be part of. That's the greatest service. And I've, I hope that liberals who have put so much faith in the federal government and put so much faith in the presidency over the years that that I hope that liberals use this very extremely fucking dark time to try to instead say okay let's let's focus on the civil society and what we can do there because if we even if we can't control the federal government there are these other things that matter and that ultimately protect us from I think the predations of a Putin like figure David in the in that context um doesn't it then follow that if you believe in the institutions that you kind of have to still believe in their, you know, fundamental basic principles, which in this case means if somebody, you know, wins in the electoral college, they are the rightful president and are owed all the respect that that office. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You believe that. But I'm not talking about governmental institutions when I'm talking about institutions. Yeah. I'm talking about the non-governmental universe that we all live in where we have these overlapping networks of, of relationships that are based on religion or sports or... Right. But, and I would just add state and local government to that equation, because I think those are really important vectors for making the lives better of people who live in your city or your state. If he does things that you don't agree with, or his administration does, then those civil and local groups and state and local government can turn into a place where you resist some of those actions. I mean, respect doesn't have to mean go along with. Yeah. And in general, liberals are usually not as good at resistance and not as um, certain of it as Republicans have been. I mean, when you think of how determined and organized and united the front of Republicans was against Barack Obama, um, you know, maybe 
that is a, a page that liberals need to learn well, how to write on and at least think about going into this administration. I'm not sure that there are people who are like, oh, yeah, sure, he's the president. That's it. I, I, there are a lot of liberals who are like, not my president, not legitimate. I don't think ever there's universal acceptance of Donald Trump um, in the way you suggest. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just paying too much attention to the fringe, but um uh, I think there are a lot of people who believe. No, I that- don't think it is universal right now, and and that's. But I mean, those protests are also part of American democracy, right? Like that's people working out right. but- their feelings about Trump or the right, and that. But that's not gonna. I mean, we're not gonna continue. It's, we're not gonna have four years. Well, yeah, know, but your initial. Will. But the the initial <laughs> it question was how. To me. But the initial question was how to treat the new Trump administration, and there are a lot of people who think or some number of people, maybe they're just vocal people, who think that the administration shouldn't even be accorded the basic uh, status that a presidency should be given. And that that's, that's, where, uh, that's where I think there's, um, that's, that's what I'm pointing to. John had to run out. He has had a speech to give and he had to go. Um, he'll be back for a cocktail chatter. But Emily and I are going to soldier on, the two of us. Rowing, rowing the boat of the Gab Fest forward into the, into the <laughs> gray, the waves it. breaking over the. John will come back and he'll have capsized. He'll have to rescue us. The SS Gab Fest, uh, the HMS Gab Fest. <laughs> so, um, Emily, I learned this week: number one, that Donald Trump won the popular vote; two, he won the Amish vote. The Pope endorsed him, and that also, and I, this was shocking to me but that an FBI agent who was investigating Hillary's emails was murdered while he was investigating Hillary's emails. I feel you've left out some even better ones. Like they finally found Bill Clinton's love child. Yeah. Right. It has been a They cra- did? <laughs> it has been a crazy period for fake news. It turns out that a lot of it is being created and produced by a whole bunch of teenagers or young people in Macedonia who are using this to make money. I'm sure they're doing great things with the money they're making from fake news. Let's just like take a minute to appreciate that. And of course, this fake news is disseminating online, principally on Facebook, my own Facebook feed, like the part in the middle that serves you up things you might want to look at, which I guess is ad sponsored, has just been filled with all of this stuff. It makes me really wonder what other people are getting. And so then there's this question of what kind of influence do these stories have? And last week, I was interviewing Trump supporters for a story I was working on, and I was struck by how many of them told me that the media is biased. You can't believe anything you read in the media. They're just like writing the entire media off. And then they'll tell me something that is just factually completely inaccurate, And it's hard to know where exactly they're getting it, but it's as if every news source is equivalent and in theory, they're all equally distrustworthy, but in reality, you pick up on the stories that confirm your own bias and sometimes the more sensational, the better. There was actually an amazing story in the Washington Post today, Thursday, about a guy named Paul Horner, who is an anti-Trump. He despises Trump and he created all these articles, which he thought were ludicrous to, you know, to make Trump and Trump supporters seem like idiots. They were f- fact-free. And he's now he's making $10,000 a month off of it because they've become so popular. So he's the one, for example, who had the story about the Amish voting for Trump. And he, you know, here's somebody who is, who's cynically, he, well, he created this, not cynically, he created idealistically to try to undermine Trump. And instead, it, it ended up cynically helping Trump. And these Macedonian kids are uh, totally cynical. This is a, a factory in Macedonia where they're just churning out uh, stories that right-wing people are forwarding on because it, it confirms some bias of theirs. It's totally outrageous. But do you think that people actually believe these stories? Is this just, we have this country where we have these two totally distinct narratives about the world. One, I think, is much more grounded in fact than the other, but whatever. There are these two totally distinct narratives. And so you pick and choose the stories that, that confirm your narrative. And it's the way the way that you – if you look, go back to the Bible, I spent this period – I'm sure you remember reading the Bible. And the Israelites used to tell these stories about their – enemy tribes that the enemy tribes you know practice child sacrifice or cannibalism of their children and you know that those stories almost certainly weren't true no culture survives if it practices child sacrifice over any period of time but it was a way for for you to 
demonize an enemy and and to, to make your own manichaean worldview feel uh, justified right so i guess there's like how many of these stories are literally taken true and then there's what effect does what cumulative effect do they have so if you have a person like hillary clinton who is um has a private email server and the FBI is looking into that. And then in the regular, but you know, more conservative dominated media, that turns into the idea that she's a liar. She can't be trusted. Her poll numbers start to reflect that. And then you have stories that kind of add on to that with these more extreme allegations, you know, that like maybe she killed someone or this FBI murder agent was murdered. Doesn't that all just become part of this toxic goo that is sticking to Hillary Clinton? and make her making her seem less and less trustworthy. And if you don't believe she's trustworthy, maybe you are a little bit more willing to believe those things. Or even if you don't literally believe them, you don't completely discard them either. I mean, when I was talking to voters last week, I was definitely hearing that. Someone told me that... Um, because Hillary was under an FBI investigation, she would definitely have to step down. They were completely sure she wasn't really going to serve as president. And so then what would that really mean? How could you vote for her if you didn't think she was really going to be the president after she was elected? And that was said to me in this very heartfelt way. And it was, I mean, it's not really my job on the phone to be unwinding that kind of conspiracy theory, but I wasn't even really quite sure where to start. Right. Right. Well, how do you think uh, – let's, let's get to Facebook and Google's culpability in a minute. But actually, how do you think that we do – instead of creating these false, divisive narratives, how do we find a way to create more shared narratives that people will agree with even though they have partisan disagreement? Or is it, is it even possible anymore? Are we totally, completely screwed because the media bubbles are – so distinct. Well, I think we're pretty screwed, but I also think that um, Facebook could be doing much more to wait real news coming through. And I'm not talking about, you know, only liberal news. I'm just talking about recognized media organizations. I mean, that's, you know, that won't necessarily solve all the problem because media organizations also make mistakes. And if you include outlets like Fox, then you're going to see falsities and, you know, very politically oriented falsities there too. But at least we could get rid of like the total ridiculous trash that like wouldn't even make it into the supermarket line. That seems kind of obvious. And Facebook can do that not by banning all this stuff, which seems to me like kind of impossible, but just by having an algorithm that weights recognized news sources higher than totally made up ones so that what you're seeing in your newsfeed kind of reflects like the normal real world around you. And, you know, so far we've seen Mark Zuckerberg totally dismiss that the idea that he has any responsibility for this. And yes, I know then Facebook followed Google by saying that they would no longer serve ads up on these sites, but that's really like, first of all, we'll see if they really do it and if it matters, but there's, there are other steps they could take that would be more meaningful. And they have to first conceive of themselves as having some editorial responsibility, which right now they don't have. I mean, Zuckerberg said, whoa, I think we have to be really cautious about putting ourselves in the positions of being arbiters of truth. But the truth is, <laughs> the truth is, the site, it does have tremendous editorial power and an editorial role. And so to pretend that, you know, you're just letting people see and watch and talk about whatever they want, and you're not responsible, I just, I think it's really at odds with Facebook's actual place in the world. It is so fucking rich for Mark Zuckerberg, who who was all too happy to take credit when the Arab Spring happens. All these all these social media people, whenever yes, there's anything seriously. which is which is politically decent happening that they like, they're like, oh, we it's all because we have these new means of communications and we're creating new communities and it's all because of us. Aren't we wonderful? And then when when something they don't like, they're like, whoa, throwing up our hands. We got nothing to do with it. I, it's just people sharing things. What can we do? We're just a platform. That is yep. maddening, that that hypocrisy. And they don't want to offend conservatives. They are it's very it's very clear that they've chosen to be we our goal is to be a universal platform for everybody and we are not going to risk that at all by attempting to enforce anything like truth or Right. Uh, I mean, do you see any way to get back to consensus? consensus of facts, consensus of shared news sources. I mean, there's an irony to this too, right? Which is that when we had only a few news sources and they were essentially like CBS, ABC, NBC, I guess the New York Times, just sort of a small number of, you know, recognized 
pillars of the media, they were, they, at least until the seventies were much more docile and they just kind of like reported, or maybe I should say at least until the sixties, they were, you know, taking the government's word for much more than we do now. And so we have this atomization, but we also have much more challenging, a much more raucous press than we do. It's hard for me to see how we get to keep the good part. And also just the business model seems like impossible to go back to um, recognize news sources that, you know, everyone kind of gives credit to. Well, it's our, our former colleague, Jack Schaefer, points out whenever stories like this come up is that that this period of a consensus press with a shared narrative is a very brief anomalous uh, moment in American history, that it's basically, you know, right. from World War Two until the 80s, we have, you know, we have 50 years of that. And that before that, and now since that, because that, that people have, ha- have consumed media, which was aimed at them politically and and reaffirmed their biases and was full, filled with lies. And so I do think it's it's more toxic and more extreme today for a bunch of different reasons. But it's not it's not completely different from what the press was like in the early 19th century, in the early 20th century. It's very hard to see how we get back to any kind of consensus. I was just thinking like, well, maybe it's sports. Maybe we can do it around sports. But even the weird thing that's happened is that even around sports, <laughs> you, there's been an atomization of media around sports. So now people consume sports media in these in bubbles. Oh, my God. We got to find some bit of hope. What's the bit of hope? What, what's, where's the, where's the, <laughs> we need some happy stories next week. Well, no, but where is the way in which you can imagine we, we could get some more national consensus or some sense of a shared narrative? The only way it's, you know, it happens because of war. It happened because of mm. alien. I do think the alien invasion. If there's an alien invasion, there'll be some kind of national unity around that. But absent that, I, okay. it's so hard but to find. But the war idea is a scary one, too, because unpopular governments also start wars to distract people from noticing how they're screwing up. Right. I don't actually mean n- none of the wars since World War II would qualify. All the wars since World War II have been terrible and distracting and bad and poisonous and divisive. And a form of manipulation in a weird way, or at least like an information has been manipulated to justify the war. Yeah. Oh man. I always, I was so skeptical about when, when people started talking about the filter bubble and the way we, you know, now we're all going to be targeted and everyone's going to, uh, you know, just consume that, which, with which pleases them. I, I was always skeptical of that. I thought, you know, that's just a, that's a small piece of everyone's identity and it, it doesn't really matter that much. But I, the older I get, the more worried I get that we are just in these tiny, 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 tiny segments and we never can see beyond them. Okay. Let's go to cocktail chatter. It is again, man. Man, I I had a lot of booze this week. I had a lot of booze for many different reasons. Not all of them election re- related, but it was a week to uh, to escape into the sweet, sweet joys of ethanol. So, Emily, what is your chatter? What is your cocktail chatter? I am reading a really interesting packed with information book called um, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. It's by John Pfaff, who is a law professor at Fordham, and it's coming out in February. I'm reading it a few months in advance. But it's adding to the conversation about criminal justice reform with this very dense, rich set of numbers. John Pfaff does quantitative work. And so he's really trying to figure out, you know, what caused what, where are the pressure points, how do we pull back on mass incarceration? And he is best known at this point for really identifying the role of prosecutors in all of this and showing that because the charging habits of prosecutors changed, that had a real impact on adding to the number of people in prison and how long they're spending there. And specifically that prosecutors doubled the rate at which they bring felony charges during the kind of key period in the 90s and 2000s and 80s when incarceration was going up an enormous amount. Anyway, I'm sure I hope that uh, this book will get some good attention when it comes out. It's called Locked in and i recommend it john what's your chatter uh my chatter is not uh my it's just a um a remembrance of uh my friend our friend gwen eiffel who passed away this week who um was a great journalist was tough and the kind of uh wonderful questions that i love about 
the conversations we have on here, which were that when everybody was kind of going along in a group of journalists sort of thinking one thing, she'd often ask the kind of pointed and kind of going the other way question, if for no other reason than to just figure out what everybody thought. But the biggest, most important thing about her was just uh, what a great person she was. No matter what mood you were in, you were always in a better mood after having been with her. So she was taken from us way too early. But her life really is a is one of those um, great examples of the way to. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she was constantly that way. But um, it's a great it's a great lesson for how to try and uh, make other people feel because she was really really good at it. And uh, and I'll miss her. What's your chatter going to be, David? My chatter, well, my chatter is somewhat jollier than both of yours because it's been such a, a dark week. Uh, it's been a dark week for me personally as well as a dark week for the country. I have been seeking just something to solace and quiet my brain. And I found something that has solaced and quieted my brain, which is very dull and soothing and sort of pointless, which is the Netflix series The Crown, which is this now 10 part but apparently going to be 60 part series about the life of queen elizabeth from her ascension to the throne in the early 1950s following the death of her father to i think the present day um, but right now we're i'm we're still in the 50s she still hasn't been she hasn't had her coronation yet there's winston churchill playing a key role there's uh, prince philip who is appears both extremely charming and loathsome all at once but it's really beautiful it's got that downton abbey sort of beauty and sheen to it nothing really much happens what happens is totally stupid and unimportant and it's obviously the symbolic monarchy but it, it's a it's a extremely extremely relaxing way to spend an hour uh, and it does make me think that we need a royal family in the united states that a royal family would be great because it would leech the charisma out of politics that that countries that have royal families have pretty dull politics and so we could use some of that our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe at iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Potts. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>